This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 289, and we're recording on July 6th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot after America's birthday. <laughs> just a lie. Just such a lie. Everything about that is wrong. They didn't sign it on the 4th. I could rant about this for like a million years. I'm not going to. It's fine. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is, I like fireworks, mm-hmm. and I like potlucks and barbecue, Sure. So if if you like take away all of the quote unquote historical context, <laughs> if you take away the reason for it, yeah, everything else is awesome. I'm all right with it, but then you add that back in, and I get less excited. Uh, also, in less exciting news, we're headed back into a heat wave here. No. So I'm just sending cooling thoughts out into the void <laughs> for all of us. It's a bummer. I was very into fireworks, and then I got this dumb dog. Yeah. And it was like not, he was okay with them. They set them off, like a, a bunch of my neighbors set fireworks off in their backyard because they're all dads and like mm. just live on that big dad energy. And he, my dog has never heard fireworks before because he was not born this time last year. And he went outside and just stood in the backyard barking at the sky. Like how, <laughs> like the audacity. How dare you keep me awake? Like it was so rude. Like, meh. so that was annoying. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise it was fine. No heat though. Boo to heat waves. Yeah. Alrighty. So how this show works. We are a show for personalized reading recommendations. I always feel ridiculous repeating the thing that I just said 30 seconds ago when I explain the show, but that's what it is. So that's the explanation. You could send us your requests for reading recommendations either through email at getbooktobookright.com or you can use the form, which is in the show notes on the site. Um, If your request is time sensitive, please put that in the subject line of the email. If you use the form, just put it in big letters in the beginning of your request so that we will see it on time. If we're not going to get to it on time, we will email you back, which is why we ask for your email address. We are also creeping up on episode 300, which is bananas, bananas. <laughs> and so for episode 300, we're going to do like an AMA slash talking about whatever books we want. <laughs> we haven't really decided on the format, obviously, but we are taking questions. So if you all have any questions for us that you want to ask about anything bookish or not bookish, you can send this to us at getbookedatbookright.com and we will answer them on episode 300. All right, we have a few items of feedback here. Laura says, let's see, for Emily, who wanted an atmospheric book with Greek myths, I recommend Lavinia by Ursula Le Guin. It's very atmospheric and beautifully written with lots of thinking about the nature of stories and people and fate. I also love Margaret Atwood's Penelope For general atmosphere, maybe books by Hannah Kent or Sarah Perry. Gina says, I have a recommendation. No, wait, skipped one. Lottie, I have a recommendation for Emily from episode 287. I'd like to recommend Among Others by Joe Walton. It's about a girl who was raised by her mother who dabbled in witchcraft and who grew up in the countryside playing with fairies and spirits. But after a terrible accident, she is sent to live with her father and aunt into a boarding school in England. The book's mysticism is very subtle and done in an interesting way. Okay, and now Gina says, for Ray in episode 286, who is looking for trans and non-binary rep, I'd like to recommend the YA novel Felix Ever After by Case and Calendar. Felix, who is AFAB, came out as trans when he was a tween, but at 17 is starting to realize that, though he's definitely not a girl, he might not always feel like a boy either. On top of trying to figure out his identity, Felix is also dealing with a nonviolent transphobic incident at school, trying to get a scholarship, and maybe falling in love, question mark. Love that. All right. Our first question I'm going to read, and then we will do our first sponsor, and on we will go. This is from Katie, who says, My husband announced recently that he wants a divorce. We've been married 10 years, and I don't want a divorce, but we are going in that direction anyway. Do you have any nonfiction recommendations with useful advice on how to emotionally manage the transition and after? Or any fiction suggestions where the female character ends up leading a satisfying single life post-divorce with no romantic happy endings, preferably without any characters that are happily single? Uh, because they lead privileged lives with lots of money. So no pri- super privilege. I get that. I'm soon uh, 40 years old and we have no children if that helps target your recommendations. All right, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. 
So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888-LOVE and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay, books for the divorce process. We, as you might know, have plenty of experience with this between the two of us. So Jen, why don't you go first? Yeah, Katie, I'm sorry that you're having to deal with this. It's it's not a fun time, whether you are the initiator or not. Either end, not fun. Mm -hmm. So I I thought a lot about what I wished somebody would have handed me when I was going Mm. through my divorce. And this is a very recent book, so it did not exist when that was happening, but it exists now. And so I am recommending to you Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nedra Glover Tawab. This is not specifically about divorce, but I think one of the hardest parts of leaving a long-term relationship is like untangling your lives and your brains and your feelings Mm. from another person, right? Like whatever the issues have been, you've been extremely enmeshed for a while and now you have to unmesh and that is a really painful and weird process like it's a super weird process and I think one of the things that like there's a lot of like you know legal stuff and like how do you start dating again or are you even ready to like there's all of these questions stirring around leaving a long-term partnership but I think that you know for me what would have been really helpful is figuring out like okay what are the new boundaries like what are the how do I interact with this person and like I'm hurt and they're hurt and like everything is weird so like how do I have healthy interactions with this person that don't make everything worse in a time that's already hard and this book is 100% about figuring out like okay what kind of relationship do you have right now with another person where are the parts that are not working And how do you figure out how to make those work? And like that, to me, would have been really invaluable during the divorce process. And Tawab is like really matter of fact, like almost like I was there were moments I was like rude. Like, how dare you call me out like this? (laughs) Like, it's very whatever your attachment style is. I think there will be something in here that you will be like, how did you know that I do that? How dare you write about that where everybody can see it? Like, oh, my God. (laughs) So so just like gird yourself a little bit when you pick this up because she's not pulling any punches here. 
But it's extremely useful and it has like step by step examples of like how to go about figuring out, you know, what what do you need of, as a new boundary? How can you get that? What's going to happen when you make it? How are people going to react? Sometimes not great. What do you do about it then? And there's all kinds of examples of different situations in the book that are, you know, from her own therapeutic practice that I think are helpful uh, as like scenarios, even though if yours are not going to be the same likely, but they could just help you think about things. So. Anyway, yeah, this book is, is so handy for trying to figure out how to how to create a new and better relationship with somebody who you've already been in deep with. Uh, so again, that's Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nedra Glover Taweb. I think that Jen and I are approaching this from pretty much the exact same angle. <laughs> where I, I also picked a book that I wish had been around when I was getting divorced, but just came out last year. It's called The New Rules of Divorce by Jacqueline Newman. And it's by a very well-known divorce attorney. And similar to what Jen was saying, the weirdest part about getting divorced for me was the mental or the, I guess it's more of an emotional switch from thinking about advocating for us to thinking about advocating for me and how that can so often in divorce, almost always in divorce, mean that you have to advocate for yourself against this person who was part of us. So going from like, looking at a legal document and considering how does this affect us to how does this affect me, even if it negatively affects him, was really hard for me because it's just knee jerk. It's automatic. Mm. It's what you've been doing for years is looking at everything that happens to you as this is happening to this partnership or this unit and figuring out how to detangle from that way of thinking in order to defend yourself from the process um, and put distance between you and the other person, especially when you aren't the one who wanted the distance in the first place, is so hard. It's so hard. And nobody really talks about it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about come here, you know, in the context of talking about divorce, it's mostly about like custody battles and the like banana pants ways people act toward each other and all these kinds of horror stories. And that is all fine and true. But with, you know, half of marriages in the US ending in divorce, most of them are pretty run of the mill and like not big and scandalous and kind of goofy. They're just hard for really mundane, normal ways. And I think this is the most mundane, normal way in which it's hard is changing from like working for the betterment of both of you to working for the betterment of just you, even if it means working for like not the worsening, but like it might have a negative impact on this other person who you have spent all of these years trying to make their lives better. You know, like that's a weird, it's just a weird mm. brain space. And this book is mostly about that, <laughs> like about how to advocate yourself, how to make that emotional transition from advocating for the two of you to advocating just for yourself and like how to find a good lawyer. It can be very practical how to find a good lawyer. It does talk about custody situations, which does not apply to you. But like if you have property that you need to split, if you have debt, like all of those sorts of things and dealing with those in consideration of this emotional thing, like debt in a marriage is not just debt in a marriage. Mm. It has all of this baggage, right? It's like who brought it in and whose fault is it, quote unquote, and like all of this kind of stuff and navigating all of that is really hard. So that's the new rules of divorce by Jacqueline Newman. Lord, now I'm having flashbacks to debt issues in my yeah. <laughs> Oh, gosh, same. <laughs> that is the worst. Okay, it's mm. not the worst. There are other things that are worse, but it's pretty bad. All right, our next question is from Jessica, who says, I am a white cisgender lesbian. Over the past year, I've started to discover just how bad the public school system failed me. I know next to nothing about Black history or culture. I want to do better and would love some books on anti-racism, Black history, or Black culture. I normally read fiction and often struggle with nonfiction feeling like a textbook. Some nonfiction authors I've really liked have been Trevor Noah, Michelle Obama, Ali Wong, and Tara Westover. All right, I'm going to keep going. So this is an interesting... I was trying to think about this from the perspective of wanting like culture as well as history and anti-racism and that you prefer fiction. So I'm recommending Well-Read Black Girl, which is a collection of essays edited by Glory Edom, who started the Well-Read Black Girl, like, I guess, it, I, phenomenon. Is that the right word at this point? Like there's a <laughs> yeah. book club, there's a newsletter, there's social media accounts, like it's a whole, there's an anthology, it's a whole thing. And what this is, is a collection of essays by Black female writers who are thinking about that moment when they first encountered a character that spoke to them, which, if you are Black in the U.S., is not a guarantee at any age, honestly, uh, although it's getting, you know, we're getting somewhere. But this is just an amazing collection. And one of the reasons I picked it is that, you know, a lot of these writers do write fiction. So they are 
you know, while this is a nonfiction essay collection, it's extremely readable. There's the per- stories are so personal, you're not going to be able to help but get drawn in. And listening to anyone talk about a book that has meant something always makes me want to read that book. So like this is an amazing way into reading some of these books that have met, meant so much in, you know, Black literary culture that you might not have come across or have never picked up at this point. So I think there's a lot of reasons why this is this is a good one for you. And the the contributor list is amazing. I mean, Jasmine Ward is in here, Jacqueline Woodson, Gabori Sidibi, uh, N.K. Jemison, Terry Jones. Like, it's like a who's who. I mean, there's just incredible authors in here. So it's I mean, it's worth a read regardless. But I think this is this is good for you for any number of reasons. So, again, that's Well Read Black Girl, edited by Glory Edom. Okay, I picked How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And looking back over the nonfiction authors that you said you liked, they're all memoirists. And so I picked this one because it is like 70% memoir mixed in with useful information about how to apply it to your own life. So Kendi is a humanities professor at BU. And he wrote this book from the perspective of, well, himself, (laughs) from the first person perspective. What a shocking thing for a memoir. Starting from his childhood and going through his college education um, and up into, you know, his adulthood now. And it's very much about his own realization of how racism works in the U.S. And the basic thesis of the book is that, you know, you could be actively racist. And according to most white people, you can then be non-racist, meaning like, I'm not a racist. I just go through my life minding my own business and not punching people who don't look like me in the street. Done. Not a racist. But that is actually a completely false dichotomy. Like, you can be a racist or you can be an anti-racist. But in order to be an anti-racist because of the structures that make up American society, you have to be actively pursuing that. So just going through life and kind of like, you know, I'm a nice person. Everything is fine. I'm not a racist. That is not enough because you will be not consciously, probably, but maybe consciously participating in racist systems without knowing it and upholding all of these racist systems. So we have to kind of swim against the current here, which in order to become anti-racist people, we have to support policies that are actively anti-racist. And that work involves identifying what policies are actively anti-racist in, you know, your local politics, national politics, in the institutions that you're in, at your job, at your bank, at your college, whatever, and then doing active work to make those things different. So you have to learn what they look like and then learn how to do the work in order to support anti-racist policies. And that is the TLDR of how you become an anti-racist. Of course, it's much more complicated than that. And he interweaves all the context that you need through his own memoir, like the story of his own life and his own kind of like awakening to what this country is actually like. And it is not, I feel like saying it that way, like you're going to have to work, you know, makes it sound very... um, burdensome almost but it is not and even if it was white people should do it anyway tldr so yeah super useful that's there is like a pretty controversial section of this book that i haven't seen a bunch of people talk about which surprised me where he says you know the the kind of generally accepted wisdom is that people of color can't be racist because we don't have power in this system and you need power in order to have racism but He kind of makes the opposite point, which is that Black people specifically have racist ideas because of all the internalized white supremacy. So, like, the cliches that they say about themselves all come from this place of white supremacy. And that was interesting. So I'm just putting a little asterisk around that because I thought that was, I don't know. Like, I've never heard that argument really before. And I haven't seen anybody else talk about it. So I don't know how generally accepted that argument would be. But the rest of the book, all I've seen is support. And I found it quite useful. So that's How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Okay, question three is from Carrie, who says, I've just started reading Hogarth's Macbeth retelling by Yo Nesbo. I'm loving the dark and gritty feeling of the story. I was wondering if you had any more recommendations for dark, gritty retellings of Shakespeare's tragedies. I'm not looking for retellings of the comedies or the lighter plays, but more Macbeth, Hamlet, maybe The Tempest. I'm also not looking for YA recommendations or any type of romance. If you can't think of any of those, any retellings of dark or gothic classics like Jane Eyre would also work. All right, Jen, what you got? All right. I am recommending If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio, which is technically not a straight-up retelling of a specific Shakespeare play. Instead, it is like, I would argue, the most Shakespearean of things, which is people doing Shakespeare and also 
all of the various elements of Shakespeare's dark plays end up in this book. So it's like a grab bag of Shakespeareana, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. Uh, content warning for domestic violence uh, in the book. This is a dark academia story. Uh, it takes place in like two timelines. We have the present day, quote unquote, when Oliver, one of the main characters, is released from jail. He's been in jail for 10 years for this murder. And there's this detective who, like, doesn't believe that the true story has yet been told and wants to know. And then we flash back to 10 years ago when Oliver was just starting out at this, like, very fancy conservatory, you know, college situation and is a Shakespearean actor and, like, trying to make friends and, like, be in the plays and all of this stuff and, you know, academia, 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 and then things get very dark and somebody dies and, like, what happened here? That kind of thing. But so they're putting on different Shakespeare plays, so you get that, and they're, like, constantly, constantly quoting Shakespeare. And so, like, I, and then, of course, people are betraying each other and there's power struggles and all kinds of things going on, all very extremely Shakespearean. So... Yes. Have at it. Have at it. I mean, what else? <laughs> Again, that's If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. Okay, I picked The Queens of Lear by Tessa Grattan, which is a chonky 670-page <laughs> retelling of King Lear, <laughs> if you cannot tell from the title. You didn't mention King Lear, but it is one of his, of course, most well-known tragedies, and it is... It's so tragic. There's a, a great Tolstoy that now I'm doing like a whole sidebar. There's a great Tolstoy essay about how King Lear is the most ridiculous play he's ever read. And I absolutely stand by that. <laughs> but it's still a tragedy. Like a bajillion people die. A whole family is torn apart. Mm. It's just very sad in an over the top ridiculous kind of way. So this is a fantasy retelling, uh, a fantasy feminist specifically retelling of King Lear. So the king still exists. He's the king of Enos Lear. He is kind of obsessed with prophecies and the stars. And in this society, everything that is bad that happens, which is quite a lot of bad things because Shakespeare is blamed on the stars. And he is slowly losing it, just like King Lear does in the, in the original play. Um, and he's got three daughters, and he's trying to figure out which of these girls he's going to leave this kingdom to, like who's going to be his heir. And they all want it for different reasons. He's got a daughter who is very war-hungry, like warlike. She's in the armed forces, and she's very into taking things with might and, and fight and all of that. Um, he has a daughter who is more of like a political manipulator, and then one who is like very nice, <laughs> just like the three in King Lear. And they have to figure out, you know, what they're going to do to try and manipulate the situation or not manipulate the situation, depending on their personalities, to do what's best for the kingdom and decide which one of them is going to take over. And all of this is, like, done in this context of this star-obsessed, prophecy-obsessed society where, like, their mother died because the stars said she was going to die. And, like, what do the stars say about what's going to happen here? And does that actually mean anything or matter? So, you know... I I feel like explaining the plot of this is just explaining the plot of the play. Like, there's a lot of political shenanigans. There's a lot of murder uh, assassination attempts. But the difference here, I think, is that, well, obviously, it's women and a feminist retelling of it. But Tessa Grattan's language is very, uh, what's that? Like, high? Like, it's a high fantasy, you mm. know? Like, I don't and not flowery. I don't think that's right. But it's work. Like, you're, you're in this really, really long story, and you have to pay attention. It, this is not a skimming sort of situation, which is the same as Shakespeare, right? Mm. Like, at this point in the evolution of language, you can't just sit down and read a Shakespeare play without, do, without actually paying attention to the words that you're reading on the page. Like, they're difficult. And I think that Grattan took a little bit of that and put it into her own work. So it's not, like, old English by any means. It's modern English, but it is really high language. The style is really elevated. So you're going to have to, you know, pay attention. So that's The Queens of Inneslear by Tessa Grattan. All right. Our next question is from Marisol, who says, recently I've become interested in reading some cyberpunk, but I'm not quite sure where to start. Most of what I know of the genre is from video games, and I'm very drawn to the aesthetic and the attitude and its anti-capitalism politics. I did read Necromancer and remember enjoying it, but that was when I was maybe 14. I'm in my mid-20s now, and I don't remember all that much of it, or if I would even still like it. 
I keep hearing about Snow Crash, but from what I've gathered, it's better read if you have some familiarity with the genre already. I would love any recommendations you could give. Bonus points if the books are not straight, white, and male. And then there are some books that Marisol has found through the show and loved, which include the Broken Earth trilogy, Gideon the Ninth, A Memory Called Empire, This Is How You Lose the Time War, Machineries of Empire series, and Ancillary Justice. That is like a top personal, like, I mean, obviously it is because you found them through the show, which means we've talked about them a billion times. Right. Like, a plus plus list right there. Uh, I'm just going to keep going, although I will say thank you, Amanda. I meant to do this and I forgot, but we have an explainer post, like a like mm-hmm. beginner's guide to cyberpunk on the site. And, and Amanda very thoughtfully put a link to that. So that'll be in the show notes as well. So I'm giving you one from this year, actually. Brand spanking new. And I really loved it. It is one of the first books I've read in a while that reminded me how much I love seeing somebody play with a lot of the elements that are in cyberpunk. It's Machinehood by S.B. Divya. I will give a content warning for the death of a child from chronic illness. Like this is it's a pretty decent part of the plot. So. Heads up, if that's a thing for you, uh, you might want to skip it. But this has two narrators. Uh, Welga Ramirez is a bodyguard. She's ex-military. And the world that this takes place in is like a near future, our world, where surveillance is ubiquitous and not in like the creepy and flux way, but just like it's just normal. <laughs> like it's just not everybody has like little like nano cameras that follow them all around all the time that are theirs. And then everybody else has ones and the, you know, companies, governments, whoever, like everybody's just watching everybody else all the time. But it turns out when you watch other people all the time, it's actually not that interesting. So it's like it truly isn't like a big deal in this story, which is one of the most interesting uses of that trope that I've seen in a while. And one of the ways you make your money is like people watch you do your job, let's say, and like send you tips for like doing a good job. So part of the deal of being a bodyguard is to like have the right outfits and like execute cool moves and like also protect your client. But like you're trying to get tipped while you do it, which is a really interesting twist on things. And also the bodyguard gig is kind of like because surveillance is so ubiquitous, people don't really crime is not the same anymore. So mostly you're actually fighting robots that are programmed not to, like, hurt people too much, but they're just to, like, make a political point. So Welga has been assigned to this uh, drug, you know, CEO and expects to have to, like, you know, kick some robots, but, like, it's not supposed to be a big deal. But then her client actually, like, they get attacked violently. Her client dies, and it appears to be the work of a terrorist group who is trying to advocate for the liberation of all AI and technology claiming that they are sentient. And everybody's like, are they though? Like, what's happening here? So the more Welga like digs into this, the more complicated everything gets. And her sister-in-law, Nithya, is a researcher who is struggling with some like life stuff. She's got an unwanted pregnancy. She's in a fight with her husband about whether or not to keep the kid. She is also struggling to keep up at work. And she and Welga are like, oh, their their relationship is so great. And the way that the story bounces back and forth between the two of them so that you see this like one very action-y, super, you know, high tech area of this world. And then one very like mundane sort of everyday is a really smart balance because you do get to see such a fascinating take on what our future could look like. And there's, I mean, there's politics, there's like outer space stuff, there's, you know, weird, like, is it a cult? Is it not a cult? Is it a terrorist cell? Like, what's going on? Like, there's big action-y sci-fi questions. But I loved the character work. I loved the way that Divya took these very sort of classic sci-fi tropes, like, you know, surveillance and biotech and artificial intelligence and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and did them in very different ways, things I haven't seen done before. So I think I think you'll really enjoy this. I think it's very accessible, and I think it will show you some fun aspects of cyberpunk that are just like, yeah, it's awesome. So again, that's Machinehood by S.B. Divya. 
Alrighty, so I picked Infomocracy by Malka and Older, which is a trilogy that is complete. Yes, I love when I can recommend those. You can go <laughs> read all three of them. It's called The Sentinel Cycle. So this is a near future cyberpunk situation. So it ticks all the cyberpunk boxes. Like we've got a really advanced digital society, but also really exaggerated poverty and a little bit of digital dystopia going on. And the world's way of doing political like of doing politics or doing geopolitics has totally changed. So we've gone from nation states to this idea of micro democracies where every group of 100,000 people is essentially its own country kind of. You can depending on which micro democracy yours borders go in and out um, like you travel pretty freely into some but not others they range from being very politically conservative to being kind of utopias to being like based on hello kitty like anywhere you can gather 100 people who have similar interests in one location geographically and make people agree about it you can have a little micro democracy and there's an election um a global election to determine who's going to you know kind of run this coalition and the, this party called Heritage, which is very conservative based on corporate corporations and corporate interests, has won the last two of these supermajority elections. And a new one is coming up. There's all of these questions about election fraud. Also, the polls are showing that who the party that's going to take the supermajority is really up, up, up in the air. Like, it's anybody's game at this point. And so into this really charged political situation is comes information, which is a search engine slash social media tool. Like, if Facebook and Google... I should guess I should say when Facebook and Google inevitably combine to make our, you know, digital hellscape um, and insert themselves into every aspect of our lives even more than they already have. Uh, information runs every aspect of everyone's life and not, you know, like kind of like now it is not necessarily out of bad motives. Of course, the results aren't always great, but information is really heavily involved in the political process. So like you can vote on your smartphone. Your smartphone is owned by information. They tag political speeches with like, that was a lie. You know, as the person is talking, information is tagging things on your devices so that you can see in real time whether or not they're lying. But who's to say that information is telling the truth? All of that kind of stuff. And the characters in this book, we we follow a couple of different ones, are political operatives or spies working for information, all trying to make this election have an outcome that they want it to have. So, you know, these ideas of like, does tech have too much power? Is, is election fraud really a thing? And is it the people being accused of doing election fraud mm. who are actually doing the election fraud or is it the people making the accusations in order to distract you from how they are doing election fraud all of these things are going to feel probably a little close to home you know uh, especially with like recent current events but it's she wrote this like the first book came out in 2016 so yeah. before the recent like before the 2020 election before um all of this stuff about the big lie and election fraud but it feels newly relevant i mean 2016 wasn't that long ago but it feels very on the nose and it's so 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 great so that's infomocracy by malka and older and now it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. 
Ella assures her that she's fine. Partying hard is what it takes. But with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments. And We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023. So suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Okay, our next question is from Anonymous, who says, In a few weeks, I will be moving to a new state where I don't know anyone and have no connections to attend medical school. It will be first my first time not living with my parents, and I'm scared that I won't be able to cope with the transition into this completely new environment and new phase of my life. I'm looking for recommendations for fictional characters in a similar situation, YA or adult, or nonfiction books that may have tips on how to go through a huge life transition and maintain good mental health. All right, Jen. Okay. Well, my first pro tip for you as somebody who has moved a lot is to find a club to join of any kind. Like, I get that you are a medical student and you will have negative amounts of free time. So this is this is not going to be the easiest thing. But, like, seriously, like, find find a hobby that can be done easily in the time you have allowed to you and then find other people doing that thing because that will help you to make some connections over a thing that's like it's not there's there's a guaranteed bridge. So the social awkwardness is a little bit less because you have a thing in common that you can talk about. And then this is like a little bit of a sideways recommendation for you. But like, bear with me here. I picked Once Upon a Time I Lived on Mars by Kate Green, which is a memoir about being part of a NASA simulation, like a four-month live-in-this-simulated-Martian-environment-in-Hawaii you know, with these crew that you don't actually really know. You're not going to be in touch with your family. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to be able to just like call them. Like it's, it's, it's extremely isolated and you have to figure out how to like deal with these people that you're with and like, what does it do to your relationships and how do you cope? And yeah, how do you have like stay sane? And I feel like medical school, in my understanding, which is admittedly limited, is not that different in that you are like spending all of your time in one place with this one very specific group of people and <laughs> seeing very little of the outside world because of the demands of the program. So I feel like you, in like a weird way, it is not dissimilar. And I love how Kate Green approaches this. She is a scientist and a journalist, and she's thinking very much about like all of the sort of social and cultural aspects of this, as well as like do you get tired of like the food that they gave you? Like, do your experiments work that you're working on? Like, what is it like to email with your, you know, partner or family on this like very intense time delay so that you can't have real time conversations? You know, all of these questions. Uh, and like, how did she get here? And like, what does she think of her fellow, you know, hab? It's simulating people and what happens when somebody eats the last chocolate cake like and doesn't it, it wasn't their turn like all of these like high pressure environment very limited interaction with the outside world questions she is talking about which I think feel extremely relevant to all of us honestly who have just come through quarantine some of us are still on lockdown for various reasons like this is this is very relevant to our lives and will continue to be relevant for lots of folks. Uh, but yeah, it's just so good. And I feel like reading this memoir, I think, would help you feel a little less alone and that like other people go through situations similar or different, but still similar to yours. And like you find a way to make connections and to stay in touch with people, even when it's hard. And like you're going to be OK, like it's going to work out. And also here's some things to think out about in the meantime. So, again, that's Once Upon a Time I Lived on Mars by Kate Green. All right. I picked Adulting by Kelly Williams Brown, which is, the subtitle is How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 easy, Easiest Steps, <laughs> which is great. That's a lot of steps. So this is a pretty common book to give to people who are newly moving out of their parents' house. It's got all of the, you know, like really practical advice you're going to need about how to find an apartment and how to cook like basic foods <laughs> for yourself, how to take care of your your home find a mechanic, fix a toilet, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of it very easily Googleable in the moment, right? But some of it is some is stuff that, that's not going to occur to you, like basic home maintenance that you should be doing on a 
set schedule, like every quarter or six months or whatever, that no, if nobody tells you, you're never going to know. Like, I didn't know I had to change the air filter in my HVAC <laughs> system until my real estate agent was like, you have to, ma'am, you know. Uh, oh, I don't well, I mean, nobody's ever told me I've never owned a house before. If you're in an apartment, that's probably not going to apply to you. But there are a lot of things like that that aren't going to be taken care of by your landlord that you're going to need to know. The thing that I like more about this book and the reason why I picked it for you specifically is because there's a lot of mental health and social advice in this book, like how to avoid making frenemies, like not getting Mm. stuck in weird, awkward romantic relationships with your coworkers. There's, There's one that's called Don't Engage with Crazy, by which she does not mean mentally ill people. She means people who are like toxic or are going to make your life harder or are like emotional vampires all of these things that you've probably encountered in your life because you're a grown-up but maybe didn't have terminology for and don't know how to recognize in a professional setting or in a college setting Um, so there's a lot of really useful emotional tips here for somebody who is coming out of living with their parents and is going into what is obviously going to be a really high stress, highly competitive environment that's probably going to have a a little bit of toxicity in it and like figuring out how to navigate that and avoid it and just put your head down and do your best work and enjoy your life while you're in medical school without getting stuck in all of that kind of weird competitiveness, um, I think would be really useful. So that's Adulting by Kelly Williams Brown. Okay. Our next question is from Margot, who says, I'm looking for romance slash erotica with adorable characters and delightfully emotional relationships. I'm new to the romance genre. I've read and loved Olivia Waits, The Feminine Pursuit series and The Queer Principles of Kit Webb. I've read most of the Sebastian St. Cyr series and enjoyed it. I love the romances in the Gracing series, and I did enjoy Akotar, despite feeling ick about some of the weirdly aggressive heteronormativity and creepy possessiveness, etc. So basically, I want steamy, like Akotar, but with nuanced and cute relationships where characters can heal and work out their issues together and find love and support. I prefer historical or fantasy, no mystery thriller, please, and no really cliched writing. One last stop is on my radar, as is The Raycast by Scarlett Peckham and The Duke Who Didn't by Courtney Milan. If you can wreck books and series or by really prolific authors, that would be amazing. All right, I'm recommending Cat Sebastian, It Takes Two to Tumble, which is the first in the Seducing the Sedgwicks series, although really, like, you could read any and all Cat Sebastian and be perfectly fine. Enjoy. Like, pick pick up whatever. It's fine. They're all historicals and super queer and super wonderful and very much adorable characters mm-hmm. <laughs> with delightfully emotional relationships. Uh, I will tell you more about It Takes Two to Tumble, which was my first Cat Sebastian. So I always pick it for starters. And it also happens to be the start of the series, although, as you know here on Get Booked, we do not believe in reading romance in order. <laughs> um, but this is like if you did The Sound of Music, but gay and with less <laughs> Nazis. Actually, no Nazis. There are zero Nazis in this book. It's about a country vicar named Ben who is very, like, content with a very, you know, quiet, predictable life. He wants to, you know, help out in the village and go do his rounds and, like, preach on Sundays and, like, just everything is fine. Nice and quiet. Totally fine. He also happens to be asked to, like lay down the law for a local naval captain's, like, children who they've lost their mother, and they're running kind of feral, and the captain is, like, always away at sea, and so nobody is really disciplining these children. And so the the neighbors are like, you have to do, it's your job to do something about this. Go do something about this. So he goes and meets them, and he's like, oh my gosh, these kids are amazing. Like, let's just have fun and climb trees together forever. It's fine. Um, <laughs> and then their dad comes back, Philip, the naval captain, and he is like, what is going on? Why are my children like not following military order? Who is this vicar? Like, why do I want to kiss his face? Like, what's happening here? (laughs) And so, so, you know, it's a romance. You could probably figure out what happens. But it's really amazing. And there's so many great characters and like supporting characters. There is like there's a blackmail plot, like there's all kinds of shenanigans that go on. But really the heart of this story, as with romance, is how do these two like find their way to each other despite, you know, literally it is illegal for them to be in a relationship in this era historically. 
And also they have their own baggage to deal with. But yeah, Cat Sebastian is great. Uh, so again, that's It Takes Two to Tumble by Cat Sebastian. That's the first in the Seducing the Sedgwick series. I picked Firelight by Kristen Callahan, which is the first book in the Darkest London series. And there are seven books in that series. So there's plenty there for you. Um, this is a paranormal historical romance series. Miranda is the main character of Firelight. And she is gifted, cursed, TBD, uh, with the ability to set things on fire with her brain. I think that would be amazing. Um, and she accidentally burns down her father's warehouse when she's a child, which plunges her family into poverty. Um, and she spends her adolescence and young adulthood becoming a petty thief at, in order to like make money to save her family, keep from starving and all of this. Uh, Lord Benjamin Archer is the hero. He's very, um, you know, nefarious, as they tend to be in romance novels. He wears a mask. There's some sort of mysterious disfigurement in his face that he, no one knows anything about. Nobody knows what he looks like or how it happened. So he's always wearing two masks on his face to make sure nobody sees him and gloves. So his skin is never showing. He spots Miranda uh, in the beginning of the book, decides that, like, she's the one for him because she's fiery and has red hair. But don't <laughs> uh, and and so they you know he proposes to her and she accepts uh, not because she knows she doesn't know this man but like as a way to get out of her current situation um and because in their like one interaction that they have she thinks he's funny like and kind of witty and charming and interesting and at least this will be fun like ain't i got nothing else to do so they get married and then spend the entirety of the book keeping this secret from each other like his secret about why he wears the mask and why he's like kind of got superhuman strength and can run as fast as a carriage horse and all of this kind of things that she discovers slowly throughout the relationship. And she's trying to keep the secret of I can set things on fire with my brain because she likes him. And eventually she falls in love with him. He already loves her, has loved her for years and doesn't want him to like run away from her because she has this terrifying ability that she's been previously engaged. And when her fiance found out about it, he decided she was a monster and he left. So she doesn't want that to happen again. So she's got this like big kind of emotional trauma from that. And then he's got obviously emotional trauma from the thing that's going on that's making him wear the mask, which I'm not going to tell you because it's a big spoiler. And so, <laughs> so they're doing this like circling around each other, falling in love. And then the, be the Benjamin's friends who were for some reason all in their like 90s start mysteriously dying like they start being really brutally murdered and he's the only connecting factor between all of these people so he becomes a suspect immediately she and everyone in society is like ready to believe that he's done it because he's the scary guy who wears masks all the time right so obviously he's a murderer because those two things are somehow related and she refuses to believe that it's true and so then they have to go like solve this situation like figure out what's going on why are all of his friends dying and then you get the whole backstory about benjamin and his 90 year old posse <laughs> which is amazing i love it so much um it's very steamy once they get through enough of their issues to like actually take their clothes off very steamy act, act, to be honest the parts where they keep all of their clothes on and are just like pining those are also quite steamy. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of steam both literal and figurative because of the fire <laughs> thing so that's firelight by Kristen callahan well done Thank you. Okay. Our last question is from Fabi, who says, I was wondering if you know of any books that are written from a perspective of an object or a different, unique perspective. I loved how The Book Thief is written from the perspective of death. I would love to read more from Uncommon Views. Okay, I'm going to just keep going. So I, I love this so much. So I picked a book. It's called Raptor Red. It's by Robert T. Backer. Yes, that Backer from like Jurassic Park. And it is a novel told from the perspective of a velociraptor. Yes. <laughs> Obviously not an object, but like very unique and interesting and strange. There's not a person to nary a human to be found in this book, obviously. So Red is like, I mean, she's a raptor, right? She's a female velociraptor. When the book opens, she's hunting. And you are just with her for like almost 300 pages as she just lives her life. Like she gets a mate. Her mate dies. She gets a new mate. She like finds her sister and like helps her raid a, raise a brood. There's a predators like a new predator that she has to avoid so she migrates like all of this kind of stuff that's obviously based on backer's like very long and prestigious life as a paleontologist and he just decided he did a michael Crichton right and was like you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna write a novel because i want to so that's what he did and it's just i don't know 300 pages of like velociraptor thoughts it's amazing well I, that's overstating she doesn't have a lot of thoughts because she's a reptile <laughs> or i guess not a reptile but you know close and adventure maybe is more accurate 300 pages of velociraptor adventure although she does like when she loses a mate she goes through a grieving process and she has like 
what we would find to be completely recognizable kind of instincts and desires. And it's just surprisingly well done. Like, you know, you go into something this like this, like this is going to be a trip, right? Like this is going to be terrible in an excellent way. Like the Da Vinci Code. I know this is bad. I don't care. I love it. It's amazing. Those two things do not have, they're not mutually exclusive, right? It's not, it's not terrible. Like it's pretty well written and it's so much fun. So that's Raptor Red by Robert T. Backer. All I can think is like, is this like the adult land before time kind of situation? Oh, like, yes. I mean, she doesn't talk and there's no star tree, sh- but sure. Yeah. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> Amazing. I will definitely be borrowing that from the library. Okay. I picked The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie, which is largely narrated by a sentient rock. It's, uh, it's a thing. This is, this is like a, this is a very hard book to describe, honestly, because it is both a very specific story about the misuse of power and religion and like the unraveling of a power dynamic, like a very specific situational, you know, political high fantasy plot. But also because you are getting a big chunk of the story from the point of view of a sentient rock which was there at, like, the beginning of time, you're getting this, like, geologic perspective on this fantasy world as well. And that is a whole trip right there. Like, it's a really interesting balance, the way that Lecky has this book set up. And, like, there's huge meditations on, you know, what does it mean to be a god and, like, to have powers and... How do people interact with the supernatural? And what are your responsibilities if someone is praying to you? Like, the, like very, like, big, big, big philosophical faith-based questions at hand here. But then also, like, you know, political coup and, like, shenanigans and running through dungeons and, like, who's who's telling the truth and who's lying and who's getting murdered. Like, it's all, it's it's extremely something. <laughs> No, I really loved this book. It's really weird, too. And it's not like a quick read, so you have to give it time. But then again, The Book Thief isn't like, you know, I mean, it's it's engaging, but it's not like I wouldn't call it a page turner per se. So I feel like you are are willing to do some hefty brain reading investment because of you said you love The Book Thief. And and The Raven Tower, I don't think is necessarily quite as, you know, much emotional investment because the topic is obviously very different. But it is that kind of like, I'm going to do some intellectual, fun, like, think thinky things with from the point of view of a sentient rock and also we're going to have like you know a fantasy plot line in addition to that that all ties together in this really fascinating way that I was not prepared for at all so highly recommend again that's the raven tower by ann lecky and that's our show woo <laughs> i'm like still trying to think about like how to talk about sentient rocks over here sentient rocks and velociraptors Velociraptors on rocks. I don't know. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more Rex at bookriot.com and you can find all of our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, thank you to our sponsors. Oh, and don't forget to send us your questions if you have any for our Ask Us Anything. You can send those to getbookedatbookriot.com. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And where's Jen? I am on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL. That's J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And you can find me on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. And we will talk to you all next week.